0: Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can find out more, including all the back episodes, at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. You'll also find a link there to send me a message and some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. We're going to take a look at a new report that was just released in August 2021 on this episode. The report is titled Indigenous Resistance Against Carbon. This report was researched and written by Dallas Goldtooth and Alberto Saldomando of Indigenous Environmental Network and Kyle Gracie of Oil Change International, with contributions from Tom Goldtooth of Indigenous Environmental Network and Colin Reese of Oil Change International. Indigenous Environmental Network is an alliance of Indigenous peoples whose shared mission is to protect the sacredness of Earth Mother from contamination and exploitation by respecting and adhering to Indigenous knowledge and natural law. You can find them at IENearth.org. Oil Change International is a research, communications, and advocacy organization focused on exposing the true costs of fossil fuels and facilitating the ongoing transition towards clean energy. You can find them at priceofoil.org. Executive Summary Indigenous resistance against carbon seeks to uplift the work of countless tribal nations, indigenous water protectors, land defenders, pipeline fighters, and many other grassroots formations who have dedicated their lives to defending the sacredness of Mother Earth and protecting their inherent rights of indigenous sovereignty and self-determination. In this effort, Indigenous peoples have developed highly effective campaigns that utilize a blended mix of nonviolent direct action, political lobbying, multimedia, divestment, and other tactics to accomplish victories in the fight against neoliberal projects that seek to destroy our world via extraction. In this report, we demonstrate the tangible impact those indigenous campaigns of resistance have had in the fight against fossil fuel expansion across what is currently called Canada and the United States of America. More specifically, we quantify the metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent, CO2E, emissions that have either been stopped or delayed in the past decade due to the brave actions of indigenous land defenders, adding up the total Indigenous resistance has stopped or delayed greenhouse gas pollution equivalent to at least one quarter of annual U.S. and Canadian emissions. Our aim is twofold. First, that Indigenous land defenders are emboldened to see the collective results of their efforts and to utilize this information as a resource to garner further support. Second that settler nation-state representatives, organizations, institutions, and individuals recognize the impact of Indigenous leadership in confronting climate chaos and its primary drivers. We hope that such settlers' allies or not come to stand with Indigenous peoples and honor the inherent rights of the First Peoples of Turtle Island, the land currently called North America. By implementing clear policies and procedures grounded in free, prior, and informed consent, and by ending fossil fuel expansion once and for all. We begin by setting the context of indigenous rights and responsibilities and free prior and informed consent and acknowledge the criminalization of defenders that deeply affects indigenous resistance. We then examine 26 indigenous frontline struggles against a variety of fossil fuel projects across all stages of the fossil fuel infrastructure development chain over the past decade. We cherish these struggles, not only for their accomplishments, but for the hope they instill in the next seven generations of life, a hope that is based on spiritual practice and deep relationship with the sacredness of Mother Earth. This report is generated in the spirited belief that our movements do not occur in isolation, nor are they alone in execution. We are a web of freedom fighters, radically imagining a future in which our liberation efforts bear the sweetest fruits of for the benefits of all life. We move with spiritual foundation, grounded in our love for the land, for we know the self-evident truth of our struggle. The land is our sovereignty, and our sovereignty is in the land. Indigenous Rights and Responsibilities Framework Indigenous social movements across Turtle Island have been pivotal in the fight for climate justice. From the struggle against the Cherry Point Coal Export Terminal in Lumi Territory to the fights against pipelines crossing critical waterways, Indigenous land defenders have exercised their rights and responsibilities to not only stop fossil fuel projects in their tracks, but establish precedents to build successful social justice movements. The essential backbone of these movements is grounded in an Indigenous rights framework. This indigenous rights and responsibilities approach is based upon the concepts of indigenous sovereignty, which exist regardless of the actions of settler nation-states. Indigenous sovereignty endures as long as indigenous peoples endure, and understanding these concepts illuminates why advocacy to prevent the extraction, production, processing, and release of carbon is based not solely on the notion of inherent rights, but on the responsibility and obligations of indigenous peoples and tribal nations to the land itself. Indigenous sovereignty and the collective right of self-determination are guided in principle by traditional indigenous knowledge, the spiritual ways, languages, cultural practices, legal systems, and social, economic, and political structures of indigenous peoples. These principles determine how indigenous peoples act and relate to surrounding ecosystems, and to other human beings on a personal level and a collective nation-to-nation level. Sovereign indigenous nations have existed since time immemorial, exercising their inherent rights and responsibilities by managing these relationships with mutual respect. Destructive actions like fossil fuel extraction and the construction of fossil fuel infrastructure on indigenous territories, lands, and waterways Directly attack traditional indigenous knowledge by seeking to untether spiritual ways, languages, cultural practices, legal systems, and social, economic, and legal systems from relationships with those lands and water. An indigenous rights and responsibilities framework links to the struggle, links the struggle, to protect the land with the ever-present struggle to resist settler nation-state acts of violence, and colonization fueled by an extractive economic system. By resisting such acts, indigenous land defenders and nations disrupt the goals of the world's most powerful institutions, nation-states, and multinational corporations. This is done with a strategic framework that protects the land, builds collective power, confronts white supremacy, and challenges tenets of capitalism and Eurocentric materialism. These fights demonstrate how a movement built upon an indigenous rights framework far exceeds the goals of environmental protection and provides a roadmap to decolonizing our current economic paradigm. Whether by physically disrupting construction, legally challenging projects, or affecting procedural delays, indigenous land defenders and nations utilize a multi-tiered approach to resist fossil fuel projects. These tactics demonstrate that indigenous rights and responsibilities are far more than rhetorical devices. They are tangible structures impacting the viability of fossil fuel expansion. Indigenous sovereignty should not be conflated with tribal sovereignty. The United States legal system recognizes the sovereign status of indigenous nations and their political structures, albeit in limited fashion. This legal recognition contextualized and existing within the U.S. system of rights, determines the boundaries of tribal sovereignty. The Canadian legal system recognizes the inherent right of self-government, at present viewed by the Canadian government as limited to negotiated agreements creating municipal styles of autonomy. Tribal sovereignty in the United States and the inherent right to self-government in Canada are not without agency, but there are important differences. Due to the unique histories of Indigenous peoples' interactions with the United States and Canada, Tribal Nations and First Nations have a wide range of reserved rights that have been recognized and upheld within the eyes of nation-state court systems. These legal battles, coupled with grassroots expressions of self-determination, have stopped and delayed the expansion of fossil fuels and also exposed the financial liabilities of such expansion when Indigenous rights are violated. Self-determination is internationally recognized as a basic human right. Specifically, the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights reaffirm the right of all peoples to self-determination and lay upon state parties the obligation to promote and respect this right. This is a key component in the assertion of international pressure on nation-states like the United States and Canada to avoid policies that seek to erase tribal sovereignty in the United States or render meaningless the inherent right to self-government in Canada. It is vitally important for Indigenous nations to utilize all available measures to protect their Indigenous sovereignty and jurisdictional authority and for all international actors to support their right to do so. Free, Prior, and Informed Consent when challenging fossil fuel projects and confronting polluting industries, the International Standard of Free Prior and Informed Consent FPIC, is a key process through which Indigenous peoples assert their sovereignty and self-determination. This right is recognized in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples UNDRIP, and when implemented properly by nation-states allows Indigenous people to grant or withhold permission to projects that may affect them or their territories. Free, prior, and informed consent is a manifestation of how traditional Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous rights are protected and enforced within and beyond Indigenous territories. Consisting of the right to be consulted, the right to participate, and the right to their lands, territories, and resources, Free prior and informed consent is the aspirational standard that many Indigenous peoples seek to enshrine within the federal policies of their respective colonial and settler states. Canada and the United States acknowledge UNDRIP on premise alone, but both nation-states have refused to adopt its text without qualifications. Due to this refusal, while these nations acknowledge the tenets of Indigenous rights, They have consistently chosen to define these rights in a way that does not ultimately threaten control over lands, natural resources, and development plans that may affect Indigenous people and territories. In both the United States and Canada, the current modus operandi to engage Indigenous peoples on extractive projects is a process of consultation. Under this process, federal governments consult with tribes and First Nations, seeking their input on planned projects such input and consultation does not guarantee outcomes in line with the wishes of those nations this consultation is crucially distinct from consent furthermore there are many examples of projects well underway before the so-called consultation even begins effectively nullifying the intention of the process and exposing its severe inadequacies Free, prior, and informed consent constitutes a much more rigorous standard than consultation, and it is a bare minimum standard needed to uphold the rights of Indigenous peoples. Advocacy and direct action by Indigenous peoples in opposition to threats to lands, waters, air, and future generations are not optional measures by those that adhere and live by traditional Indigenous knowledge. They are obligations. When indigenous peoples assert inherent rights under frameworks like the recognition of tribal sovereignty or indigenous sovereignty, it, does go, it goes far beyond just those rights recognized under settler-state legal and political systems. Asserting these rights is a practice of indigenous peoples self-determining their future on their terms. These rights involve carrying out spiritually and culturally derived obligations to preserve inherent relationships to our ecosystems, to recognize the original instructions and natural laws of Mother Earth and Father Sky, and to protect future generations. This grounding in indigenous sovereignty, tribal sovereignty, the inherent right to self-government, and self-determination inspire and give strength to those fighting through lived values and principles to keep fossil fuels in the ground and protect Turtle Island. CRIMINALIZATION OF DEFENDERS, STANDING ROCK, AND BEYOND This report on indigenous resistance to fossil fuel projects would be incomplete without attention to severe threats faced by frontline leaders and communities when they speak out and take action. The fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline is a notable example of these threats. What happened in Standing Rock should not be seen as an anomalous incident but rather a disturbing commonality across indigenous resistance efforts worldwide. The grassroots fight against Energy Transfer Partners Dakota Access Pipeline began in early 2016. The Bakken Oil Pipeline was expected to transport crude oil from the traditional lands of the three affiliated tribes of the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arakara nations to an oil terminal in southern Illinois. The Dakota access route crossed the treaty territories of the Osseti Sakowin people near the reservation boundaries of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and crossed beneath the Missouri River on the tribe's northern border. The tribes and their citizens saw the pipeline as a serious threat to water resources, treaty rights, and sacred cultural sites and mobilized one of the largest sustained indigenous-led protests in the living memory of the United States. In response to the mobilization against Dakota Access, local and state officials used military tactics to suppress public protest and intimidate water protectors. In May 2017, The Interceptor reported on the activities of Tiger Swan, a mercenary private contractor hired by energy transfer partners to quell the efforts of water defenders at Osseti Sakowin Standing Rock, North Dakota. The Intercept's initial report, the first in a series of 16, was based on internal company documents and described illegal actions taken against peaceful indigenous defenders and misinformation given to local police forces to attack thousands of people encamped near the Dakota Access Pipeline's Missouri River crossing. Tiger Swan Communications described the peaceful gathering as jihadist and terrorist and the private contractor used military-grade weapons and tactics to undercut, discredit, and punish the defenders. Tactics included infiltration, provocation, disruption of communications, aerial surveillance, and radio eavesdropping. Intimidation involved the use of large and visible forces of heavily armed personnel and personnel carriers, as well as drones and air surveillance. The task force arrayed against the defender included agents from the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigations, U.S. Department of Homeland Security, U.S. Justice Department, and Marshal Service, and U.S. Bureau of Indian Affairs, as well as state and local law enforcement and police. Tiger Swan transmitted daily reports, quote, from the battlefield to energy transfer partners. Local authorities arbitrarily arrested and harassed water protectors, and both local and tiger swan force forces used aggressive attack dogs and other forms of physical violence, including water cannons, in freezing conditions. Despite later vindication by courts, thousands of victims of these abuses, the vast majority of whom were indigenous, remained scarred by these clubs and beatings. One young white supporter had to have her arm amputated and two Indigenous women lost eyes due to tear gas canisters. Hundreds were left with arrests on their records and files at the Federal Bureau of Investigation and Department of Homeland Security, with gratuitous charges, including trespassing, despite being arrested on public roads. The brutality of the private security forces played a major role in provoking public outrage. In addition to physical violence, the Standing Rock Reservation was punished economically by the U.S. state of North Dakota, and the hard-won victories of indigenous resistance were overturned when newly inaugurated U.S. President Donald Trump overruled President Barack Obama's denial of key permits and facilitated the completion of the Dakota Access Pipeline. During the height of the Dakota Access Resistance, United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Victoria Tolly Corpuz and UN Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues Expert Member Edward John visited Osseti Sakowin and condemned the violation of human and indigenous rights by energy transfer partners Tiger Swan and federal, state, and local security forces. Tauli Corpuz specifically decried the company and government's violation of the Standing Rock Sioux tribe's right to land. In her 2018 report to the UN Human Rights Council, Tauli Corpuz presented a thematic study on the criminalization of and attacks against indigenous human rights defenders. Citing her own investigations and those of other special rapporteurs and the Organization of American States, She identified numerous rights violated at Standing Rock, including that of self-determination and the right to lands and territories. The report situated these abuses in a global context in which governments and industry intimidate and persecute indigenous communities when they act to defend their lands, territories, water, food sovereignty, and security, and ways of life. Tali Kopuz cited specific instances of heavy-handed intimidation through militarization, including illegal surveillance, disappearances, forced evictions, judicial harassment, arbitrary arrests and detention, limits on freedom of expression and assembly, stigmatization, travel bans, and sexual harassment. Authorities in Latin America and elsewhere have also utilized false allegations, unfounded prosecutions, and terrorism charges to intimidate indigenous communities and leadership These attacks have now spread to social media, where hate speech and racial discrimination add to the violence often inflicted on indigenous leadership and defenders. The special rapporteur confirmed that Standing Rock was not an anomaly. Intimidation of indigenous communities and their defenders is occurring at an alarming rate worldwide. She also cited the worst human rights violation of all, the right to life and reported data on the killings of indigenous defenders worldwide. In 2017, 312 defenders in 27 countries were murdered in defense of land, the environment, and indigenous people's rights. Also in 2017, UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and the Environment, John Knox, cited a Global Witness report that environmental defenders were being killed at the rate of four per week. He described the global situation as an epidemic now, a culture of impunity, a sense that anyone can kill environmental defenders without repercussions and eliminate anyone who stands in the way. In 2021, Coordinadora de las Organizaciones Indígenas de las Cuencas Amazonica reported to the Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues that Indigenous defender was assassinated every two days in the Amazon Basin of Bolivia Brazil, Colombia, and Peru. These killings not only eliminate vocal opposition, but also intimidate other movement leaders, families, and entire communities and regions. This deadly record of harming has not abated. It has held steady at four per week and disproportionately impacts Indigenous defenders, according to an updated 2019 report from Global Witness. Quote, Indigenous peoples continue to be at a disproportionate risk of reprisals, with 40% of victims belonging to Indigenous communities. Between 2015 and 2019, over one-third of all fatal attacks have targeted Indigenous people, even though Indigenous communities make up only 5% of the world's population. And on a side note, the report from 2020 from Global Witness also indicates a, a rate of about 4 environmental defenders per week being murdered. Traditional indigenous peoples have always felt a great responsibility to the earth and its well-being. This has been their duty as those closest to the land. This duty extends to the protection of Mother Earth and its entire web of life, including the struggle against climate change. In spite of gross violations of their inherent individual and collective rights of sovereignty, and self determination. Indigenous peoples continue to resist extractive colonialism in all its forms. And this piece then lists the specific 26 um, actions and battles that the Indigenous uh, activists are fighting against from Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to Trans Mountain Extension Oil Pipeline to Jordan Cove LNG export terminal at Pacific Connector gas pipeline, all the way down to the Rio Grande LNG export terminal and Rio Bravo gas pipeline. So there's a lot of information about each of these battles in the report. Counting up the impact. To assess the scale of indigenous resistance against carbon, We begin by calculating the amount of greenhouse gas pollution each project would create. Most of these assessments were conducted by Oil Change International, with certain exceptions drawn from other sources. We examined only the reported climate impact of specific pipelines, tar sands mines, and the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Adding extraction areas such as the Permian Basin, the Canadian tar sands, and the San Juan Basin of Chaco Canyon would significantly increase the size of our estimate, but would also introduce a potential for double-counting pipelines carrying fossil fuels out of these areas, leading to a more speculative assessment contingent on future development. For scale, we compare the climate impacts of projects facing indigenous resistance over the last decade to 2019 estimates of total combined greenhouse gas pollution from the United States and Canada, 6.56 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. CO2E. Total indigenous resistance against these projects on Turtle Island, including ongoing struggles, victories against projects never completed, and infrastructure unfortunately in current operation, adds up to 1.8 billion metric tons CO2E, or roughly 28% of the size of of 2019 U.S. and Canadian pollution. Victories in infrastructure fights alone represent the carbon equivalent of 12% of annual U.S. and Canadian pollution, or 779 million metric tons CO2e. Ongoing struggles equal 12% of these nations' annual pollution, or 808 million metric tons CO2e. If these struggles prove successful, this would mean Indigenous resistance will have stopped greenhouse gas pollution equivalent to nearly one-quarter, 24%, of annual total U.S. and Canadian emissions. That 24% equaling 1.587 billion metric ton CO2E is the equivalent pollution of approximately 400 new coal-fired power plants, more than are still operating in the United States and Canada, or roughly 345 million passenger vehicles, More than all the vehicles on the road in these countries indigenous resistance has also contributed an outsized political impact helping shift public debate around fossil fuels and indigenous rights and avoid lock-in of carbon intensive projects these impressive figures also underestimates total indigenous resistance since this report focuses on just the largest and most iconic projects Establishing Consent in Ending the Fossil Fuel Era This report is predicated on a simple fact. The world is delving deeper into climate chaos, and we must change course. In parallel to the severe threats Mother Earth is facing from climate change, the rights, well-being, and survival of indigenous peoples throughout the world are at grave risk due to the same extractive industries driving the climate crisis. Indigenous peoples continue to exert social and moral authority to protect their homelands from oil and gas development. Coupling these expressions with legal authority of Indigenous rights, frontline communities and tribal nations have made tangible progress stemming fossil fuel expansion. This progress is inevitably accompanied by extreme risks for Indigenous peoples. Such are the dangers of directly challenging capitalism, Indigenous resistors demanding nothing less than systemic change that threatens the accumulated wealth of the settler-colonial institutions that have stolen indigenous lands, used black and indigenous labor to extract resources from that land, and erected systems of inequity to maintain control for centuries. To protect against these threats and undue systemic inequities embedded in society, our leaders must recognize the self-determination and inherent sovereignty of indigenous peoples to decide what happens in their own territories. These principles can only be implemented by clear policies and processes requiring governments to consult with Indigenous nations and their peoples to obtain Indigenous peoples' free, prior, and informed consent. The United States and Canada must recognize their duty to consult and obtain consent from Indigenous peoples for all projects proposed on Indigenous lands. In parallel, these settler nation state governments must recognize that the fossil fuel era is rapidly coming to a close. Our climate cannot afford new oil, gas, or coal projects of any kind. Phasing out existing fossil fuel infrastructure will already be a monumental challenge. Indigenous resistance to carbon is both an opportunity and an offering. Now is the time to codify the need to keep fossil fuels in the ground to safeguard both the climate and indigenous rights. And this report further contains an appendix explaining the methodological notes on the report and how it came to its conclusions on totals and a list of resources. If you remember back a few months ago, um, Greenpeace UK secretly recorded some oil industry lobbyists uh, talking about their strategies and some of the Democrats in Congress that they contributed money to. This piece is written by Alexander C. Kaufman. is published at grist.org. ExxonMobil Corp. lobbyist Keith McCoy listed six Democrats the oil giant saw as key allies to push its legislative agenda in the Senate in a secretly recorded Sting video Greenpeace UK published late last month. New analysis of campaign disclosures found the six Democratic Senators, Mark Kelly of Arizona, Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Chris Coons of Delaware, Kristen Kirsten Cinema of Arizona, and John Tester of Montana, received a combined total of nearly $333,000 from lobbyists, political action committees, and lobbying firms affiliated with Exxon over the past decade. The analysis of campaign disclosures, which the advocacy group Oil Change U.S. conducted and HuffPost reviewed, found Tester received the most in donations from ExxonMobil, $99,783 from seven lobbyists, the company's PAC, and four lobbying firms working for the firm. The report includes some donations lobbyists at K Street behemoths such as Aiken, Gump, Strauss, Hauer, and Feld and Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, Schreck gave before taking on ExxonMobil as a client. Spokespeople for Coons and Cinema said including those contributions in the total was quote misleading and inaccurate. But Colin Reese, the senior campaigner at Oil Change U.S. who conducted the analysis, said the donations paint a fuller picture of ExxonMobil's influence taking stock of the relationship the company's money helped cultivate, as well as those that may have prompted the oil giant to hire certain lobbyists in the first place. Quote, This is a story about how lobbyists curry favor, and specifically about how Exxon's current lobbyists have spent decades currying favor of these six Democrats to position themselves to do things like safeguard fossil fuel subsidies, and pare-down infrastructure packages. Exxon has hired these firms and lobbyists because they've contributed hundreds of thousands of dollars to these Democrats both before and after they were hired by Exxon. Counting donations from lobbyists like Arshi Siddiqui, some of which came before ExxonMobil hired her, makes Cinema the number two recipient on the list, with $70,800 in contributions from eight ExxonMobil lobbyists the company PAC, and three lobbying firms. Quote, Inclusion of those contributions would be incredibly misleading, John LeBombard, spokesman for Cinema, said. of money that came from lobbyists who also work for other clients. Kirsten's work in the Senate is influenced by only one thing, what is best for Arizona? Coons came in third with $68,650 from seven lobbyists, the PAC, and four lobbying firms. One of the other ones that aren't talked about is Senator Coons, who's from Delaware, who has a very close relationship with Senator Biden, McCoy said in the now viral video, in which he believed he was talking to corporate headhunters in Dubai, United Arab Emirates. So we've been working with his office. As a matter of fact, our CEO is talking to him next Tuesday. It is unclear whether a meeting with ExxonMobil chief Darren Woods took place. Manchin, meanwhile, received the fourth most donations at $64,864, followed by Hassan at $26,699. Kelly, who took office last December and declined all corporate PAC money, accepted just $1,500, which came from two Exxon-registered lobbyists. On the Democrat side, we look for the moderates, McCoy said. So it's the mansions, the cinemas, it's the Testers, and I have to inflect what the... Uh, Lobbyists consider the Democratic moderates are quite significant um, conservatives when you're looking at the Democratic Party. Beyond seeking out right-leaning senators, McCoy said the company looked for, quote, who's up for re-election in 2022. That's Hassan, he said. That's Kelly. Kelly. A spokeswoman for Hassan pointed to the senator's 98% voting score from the League of Conservation Voters and noted that, quote, The video only says that Senator Hassan is up for re-election. It isn't for her support of their policies, but simply because she is up for re-election. A spokesman for Kelly said Senator Kelly has not met with the individual in the original Exxon video and hasn't spoken with anyone from this company in the Senate. Senator Kelly also does not accept corporate PAC contributions to his campaign. Tester's office did not provide a comment. ExxonMobil said it, quote, complies with all federal and state regulations and lobbying laws. We have a responsibility to our customers, employees, communities, and shareholders to represent their interests in public policy discussions that impact our business, said Todd Spitler, an ExxonMobil spokesman. He said McCoy's remarks, quote, Do not represent the company's position on a variety of issues, including comments regarding interactions with elected officials. In the video, McCoy said ExxonMobil is playing defense as the Biden administration and its slim Democratic majority in Congress seek to enact the country's most significant climate legislation ever including voting on an infrastructure package with billions of dollars for clean energy and electric vehicles, as well as looking to pass a 100% clean electricity standard through budget reconciliation. The push comes amid cascading climate disasters from deadly heat waves on one coast to historic flooding on the other that scientists say will grow worse and more frequent if fossil fuel use continues unabated. Even the International Energy Agency, Hardly a tree-hugging institution, projects that averting catastrophic warming means, quote, from today, no investment in new fossil fuel supply projects. But influence peddling is nothing new for the $258 billion company, which served as one of the chief financiers of a network of climate-denial think tanks throughout the 1990s and early 2000s. Today, ExxonMobil funds trade associations, that lobby against climate policies while offering a rhetorical contrast to oil giants that advocate for politically unpopular proposals unlikely to reach fruition in a bid to look like responsible actors. Donations don't necessarily equal political clout. Senator Ed Markey, Democrat of Massachusetts, one of the lead champions of ending fossil fuel use, previously accepted campaign contributions from lobbyists linked to ExxonMobil. He returned them in 2019, but the incident highlighted just how tightly woven oil companies are into the fabric of American politics, and as a result, how difficult it can be to avoid threads that ultimately lead back to the fossil fuel industry. But a 2017 Ohio State University study indicates the donations have a measurable effect, particularly as they enter the five-figure range. For every $10,000 a lawmaker received from a major industrial polluter like ExxonMobil, their probability of voting for pro-environmental legislation decreased by 2%, according to the study of donations between 1990 and 2010, published in the journal Environmental Politics. For Democrats, the effect of the donations was even stronger, reducing likelihood of a pro-environmental vote by 3%. Regardless of whether it swings votes, firms like ExxonMobil give, money, quote, give quote, money to secure access to politicians, said Tyson Slocum, the energy program director at the anti-corruption group Public Citizen. While securing access doesn't guarantee results, it ensures the company can influence the thinking and positions taken by the politician receiving the money, Slocum said, noting that he condemned Greenpeace's UK's deceptive tactics to Duke McCoy. And the result shows that Exxon does indeed appear to influence these and other elected officials to which it contributes. Virginia Cantor, the chief ethics counsel at the watchdog Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, said corporate lobbyists, quote, expect something in return when they make political donations. As a result, when Exxon's lobbyists, PACs, and lobbying firms make donations to particular senators, we have to ask ourselves, what do they expect and what did they get in return, said Cantor, a former ethics counsel for the Obama and Clinton administrations. The sting video has prompted new scrutiny of ExxonMobil beyond its campaign contributions. The New Republic examined the company's routine six-figure donations to centrist think tanks such as the Brookings Institution. On Monday, the advocacy group Physicians for Social Responsibility published a new report indicating that the oil giant uses so-called forever chemicals, a family of cancer-causing water contaminants known as per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS, to drill at roughly 1,200 wells across six U.S. states. If ExxonMobil's use of PFAS were more widely known, McCoy said in one part of the video, environmentalists would likely, quote, start talking about how this is an ExxonMobil chemical and ExxonMobil is poisoning our waterways. Once the public accepts that framing of reality, he said, the debate is pretty much over. And here's a piece written by Kenny Stansel, published at CommonDreams.org, discussing those forever chemicals and their use in oil extraction and fracking. Between 2012 and 2020, fossil fuel corporations injected potentially carcinogenic and polyfluoroalkyl substances, PFAS, or chemicals that can degrade into PFAS, into the ground while fracking for oil and gas, after former President Barack Obama's Environmental Protection Agency approved their use despite agency scientists' concerns about toxicity. The EPA's approval in 2011 Of three new compounds for use in oil and gas drilling, or fracking, that can eventually break down into PFAS, also called Forever Chemicals, was not publicized until Physicians for Social Responsibility obtained internal records from the agency through a Freedom of Information Act request, the New York Times reported Monday after reviewing the files. According to PSR's new report, Fracking with Forever Chemicals, Oil and gas companies, including ExxonMobil, Chevron, and others engaged in hydraulic fracturing, or fracking, have since 2012 pumped toxic chemicals that can form PFAS into more than 1,200 wells in Arkansas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Texas, and Wyoming. While the Times noted that the newly released documents constitute some of the earliest evidence of the possible presence of PFAS in fracking fluids, PSR report warns that, quote, The lack of full disclosure of chemicals used in oil and gas operations raises the potential that PFAS could have been used even more extensively than records indicate, both geographically and in other stages of the oil and gas extraction process, such as drilling, that precede the underground injections known as fracking. It's very disturbing to see the extent to which critical information about these chemicals is shielded from public view, Barbara Gottlieb, PSR's Environment and Health Program Director, said Monday in a press release. The lack of transparency about fracking chemicals puts human health at risk. As the Times reported, quote, In a consent order issued for three chemicals on October 26, 2011, EPA scientists pointed to preliminary evidence that under some conditions, the chemicals could degrade in the environment into substances akin to PFOA, a kind of PFAS chemical, and could, quote, persist in the environment and be toxic to people, wild mammals, and birds. The EPA scientists recommended additional testing. Those tests were not mandatory, and there is no indication that they were carried out. The EPA identified serious health risks associated with chemicals proposed for use in oil and gas extraction and yet allowed those chemicals to be used commercially with very lax regulation, Dusty Horwit, a researcher at PSR, told the newspaper. In a statement released Monday, Winona Howder, Executive Director of Food and Water Watch, called the PSR report alarming and said it confirms what hundreds of scientific studies and thousands of pages of data have already shown over the last decade. Fracking is inherently hazardous to the health and safety of people and communities in proximity to it, and should be banned entirely. As PSR notes, PFAS, highly potent toxins that accumulate in the body and persist in the environment, pose a threat to human and environmental well-being. Negative health effects linked to PFAS include low infant birth weights, disruptions of the immune and reproductive systems, and cancer. The potential that these chemicals are being used in oil and gas operations should prompt regulators to take swift action to investigate the extent of this use, pathways of exposure, and whether people are being harmed, said Linda Birnbaum board-certified Ph.D. toxicologist and former director of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. Howder added that this says nothing of the dreadful impact fossil fuel extraction and burning is having on our runaway climate crisis. Fracking threatens every person on the planet directly or indirectly. According to The Times quote, "In a 2016 report, the EPA identified more than 1,600 chemicals used in drilling and fracking, or found in fracking wastewater, including those, including close to 200 that were deemed carcinogens or toxic to human health. The same EPA report warned that fracking fluid could escape from drill sites into the groundwater and that leaks could spring from underground wells that store millions of gallons of wastewater. Communities near drilling sites have long complained of contaminated water and health problems that they say are related. The lack of disclosure on what sort of chemicals are present has hindered diagnoses or treatment. Various peer-reviewed studies have found evidence of illnesses and other health effects among people living near oil and gas sites, a disproportionate burden of which fall on people of color and other underserved or marginalized communities. Quote, the Obama-Biden administration approved the use of toxic PFAS chemicals for fracking a decade ago, said Hauser, Howter. And all these years later, President Joe Biden's practices haven't seemed to change a bit. The Biden administration has claimed to be concerned about PFAS contamination throughout the country, Howder said. Biden himself pledged during the campaign to halt new fracking on federal lands. Meanwhile, this administration is approving new fracking permits at a pace similar to Trump, with no let-up in sight. Earlier this month, whistleblowers at the EPA accused the Biden administration of continuing the quote war on science, with managers at the agency allegedly modifying reports about the risks posed by chemicals and retaliating against employees who report the misconduct. As Common Dreams reported, Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility filed a formal complaint on behalf of four scientists with the EPA's Office of the Inspector General, demanding an investigation into reports that a higher-level employees routinely delete crucial information from chemical risk assessments or change the document's conclusions to give the impression that the chemicals in question are safer calling Monday's revelations about the Obama administration's decision to greenlight the use of PFAS and fracking quote, a scandal that should lead every nightly news program. Jamie Henn, co-founder of 350.org and director of Fossil Free Media, noted that quote, we still don't know the full extent of toxic chemicals that companies are using in their fracking operations. Why is the EPA allowing them to poison our communities without conscience, he asked. Howder called on Biden to immediately make good on his promise to halt new fracking on federal lands, adding that his administration must take urgent action to contain the use of PFAS chemicals and their deadly spread into our water and communities. So as the oil companies and other fossil fuel industry corporations uh, continue to massively harm the environment, And continue to buy access to the politicians to enable their destruction of the environment. Um, How are we doing globally on our fight against climate change? This is another piece from CommonDreams.org. This one is written by Andrea Germanos. A new analysis reveals near-total global failure of governments to have climate action and targets on track for limiting global warming to one warming, or maybe warning, to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Released Wednesday by the Climate Action Tracker (CAT), the assessment rated just one nation, the Gambia, as quote. degrees Celsius Paris Agreement compatible and found the United States' overall climate action, despite a welcome U-turn on climate change since the Trump administration, to be, quote, insufficient. The analysis, which covered the policies of 36 nations and the European Union, framed the widespread failings as particularly glaring given the, quote, absolute urgency of climate action made clear by the most recent IPCC report, a publication United Nations Chief Antonio Guterres declared a code red for humanity. CAT, a watchdog effort of Climate Analytics and New Climate Institute, described a, quote, 2030 emissions gap in projecting how government's plans and current policies largely fall short of being on track to meet the 1.5 degrees centigrade threshold of warming. The analysis said, The IPCC is clear that getting onto a 1.5 degree pathway means reducing emissions by 50% by 2030 and that meeting that goal is no longer a matter of feasibility, but one rather one of political will. Such will appears to be lacking. In a statement, Nicholas Hone of New Climate Institute pointed to May after U.S. President Joe Biden's Leaders' Summit on Climate and the International Petersburg Climate Dialogue when, quote, we reported that there appeared to be good momentum with New Climate Action's commitments, but governments then had only closed the emissions gap by up to 14%. But since then, said Hone, there has been little to no improvement. Nothing is moving. Governments have now closed the gap by up to 15% a minimal improvement since May anyone would think they have all the time in the world when in fact the opposite is the case this latest assessment from cat includes new factors in its rating systems reflecting net zero targets as well as an overall rating the domestic target policies and actions fair share climate mitigation finance either on providing mitigation finance or detailing what international support is needed, and land use and forestry where relevant. Based on overall ratings, the UK is the only G20 nation deemed almost sufficient, a classification that covers six other countries, including Nepal and Costa Rica. Like the US, the EU, Germany, Norway, and Japan's overall climate plans were assessed as insufficient. Canada joined Brazil, Australia, India, and UAE as countries whose plans were deemed highly insufficient. A small group of countries had overall climate plans classified as critically insufficient. Iran, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Singapore, and Thailand performed so badly on climate action, the analysis found, that if all governments were to adopt this approach, global warming would reach beyond 4 degrees Celsius. To move in the right direction, the analysis urged developed nations quote, to further strengthen their targets to reduce emissions as fast as possible, to implement national policies to meet them, and to support more developing countries to make the transition. In terms of energy sources, all governments should take advantage of the falling costs of renewables to boost such installations, while also ditching plans for any continued coal and gas infrastructure, the analysis said. Bill Hare, CEO of Climate Analytics, stressed the need for swift action to rein in emissions. Quote, The IPCC has given the world a code red warning on the dangers of climate change, reinforcing the urgent need for the world to have emissions by 2030, he said in a statement. An increasing number of people around the world are suffering from even more severe and frequent impacts of climate change yet government action continues to lag behind what is needed. While many governments have committed to net zero, he said, that without near-term action, achieving net zero is virtually impossible. The publication was released on the heels of a global study revealing widespread climate anxiety in young people, with 58% of the 10,000 16-25 to 25 year olds surveyed feeling betrayed by government inaction on the climate emergency. This study shouldn't be a moment of pity, said German climate activist Luisa Nebauer. The adequate answer to this study would be drastic climate action. And coming up shortly, the World Summit on Climate is happening in Scotland. It is called COP26. Here's a piece about it from Truthout.org, written by Simon Perani. In the run-up to the United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP26, in the UK in November, the 26th session of the talks that were launched in Rio de Janeiro in 1992, the governments of the world's richest countries are making ever-louder claims that they are effectively confronting global warming. Nothing could be more dangerous than for social, labor, and environmental movements to take this rhetoric at face value and assume that political leaders have the situation under control. There are three huge falsehoods running through these leaders' narratives. That rich nations are supporting their poorer counterparts, that net-zero targets will do what is needed, and that technology focused on green growth is the way to decarbonize. First, wealthier countries claim to be supporting poorer nations, which are contributing least to global warming and suffering most from its effects to make the transition away from fossil fuels but at the g7, g7 summit in june the rich countries again failed to keep their own promise made more than a decade ago to provide 100 billion dollars per year in climate finance for developing countries of the 60 billion dollars per year they have actually come up with more than half is bogus Analysis by Oxfam has shown that it is mostly loans and non-concessional finance and that the amounts are often overstated. Compare this degrading treatment of the Global South with the mobilization of many hundreds of billions for the post-pandemic recovery. Of $657 billion public money alone pledged by G20 nations to energy producing or energy consuming projects. $296 billion supports fossil fuels, nearly a third greater than the amount supporting clean energy, $228 billion. Meanwhile, the impacts of climate change are magnified by poverty. This year's floods, wildfires, and record temperatures in Europe and North America have been frightful enough. The same phenomena cause far greater devastation outside the global north. In 2020, very extensive flooding caused deaths, significant displacement of populations, and further impacts from disease in 16 African countries, the World Meteorological Organization's annual climate report recorded. India, China, and parts of Southeast Asia suffered from record-breaking rainfall and flooding, too. Climate and weather events had major and diverse impacts on population movements and on the vulnerability vulnerability of people on the move, the WMO reported. Cyclone Amphan displaced 2.5 million people in India and Bangladesh last May. Many could return soon, but 2.8 million homes were damaged, leading to prolonged displacement. Severe storms in Mozambique piled on dangers for tens of thousands of people displaced by the previous year's floods and who had not been able to return home. The political leader's second fiction is their pledge to attain net-zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, the U.S., U.K., and Europe, or 2060 in China. Net-zero signifies a point at which the amount of greenhouse gases being pumped into the atmosphere is balanced by the amount being withdrawn. Once, it may have been a useful way of taking into account the way that forests in particular soak up carbon dioxide. But three decades of capitulation to fossil fuel companies since the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change was signed in 1992, have turned it into a monster of deceit. Thanks to corporate capture and government complicity, many of the greenhouse gas emissions projections in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's recent report factor in huge levels of carbon removal by dubious technologies that do not And may never work at scale. Governments have drawn up net zero targets reliant on these myths. On top of this, the 2015 Paris Agreement left rich nations to decide what share of global emissions they would take responsibility for. So the UK government, which laughably describes itself as leading the world on climate, uses targets for emissions cuts at half the level that scientists say is necessary. The politician's third and more complex deception is in the technology-centered decarbonization measures they embrace in the name of quote green growth these rely on tweaking rather than transforming the big technological systems through which most fossil fuels are consumed transport networks electricity grids urban infrastructure and industrial agricultural and military systems an example is electric vehicles Promoted as the principal means to reduce transport sector emissions. Governments ignore the carbon footprint of the vehicle's manufacture and electricity use, unless and until the grids are 100% green, and the roads and parking spaces that the vehicles use. Alternative approaches focus on expanding public transport, shifting to non-motorized modes, and reducing the total number of journeys, especially in cities. In a climate emergency, they ask, shouldn't we stretch our imaginations beyond lives made miserable, sitting in rush hour traffic? But governments avoid or oppose such solutions because they would involve confronting the corporate power of oil companies, car manufacturers, and property developers, in whose interest it is to perpetuate car culture. A second example of government's corporate-based technology approach involves home heating and cooling. Small-scale technologies that can slash the energy throughput needed—proper insulation, electric heat pumps instead of gas, small-scale renewable generation—are eschewed. Instead, political leaders advocate incremental change to large systems at a pace that suits the companies that control them. In the UK, architects protest as the government loosens building regulations when it should be tightening them to ensure that new houses are near zero carbon. Trade unions in Leeds campaign for insulation and heat pumps, the right solution for the city's housing stock, instead of a scheme to swap the gas network for hydrogen that is little more than a survival strategy for the companies producing oil and gas on the North Sea. In the U.S., community groups advocate zero-carbon energy systems as part of an integrated approach to a just transition away from fossil fuels. Governments resist because the corporations resist, Energy corporations fear decentralized electricity generation outside of their control. Property developers despise regulation that compels them to use zero-carbon building techniques. Gas distributors hate electric heat pumps. Just as oil companies and car manufacturers dread radical decarbonization of transport, petrochemical giants fear plastic-free supply chains, big agribusiness is terrified by low-carbon food systems, and so on. Climate researchers have shown that absolute zero, not net-zero emissions, is entirely achievable, by reducing energy throughput and living differently. The path is blocked not by technological factors, but by political ones, by the dynamics of wealth and power that constitute capitalism, the same dynamics that force the burden of climate change on the Global South. Tackling climate change involves overcoming those dynamics, It is not so much about replacing bad government with good government, as it is about subverting, confronting, confounding, and defeating corporate power. It is about developing a vision of our collective future that goes beyond capitalism. We see glimpses of the social forces that could achieve this. Resistance to neo-colonial resource extraction, which is at the heart of the fossil-fueled economy, rages across the Global South. In the global north, there are acts of green heroism by the saboteurs of the Dakota Access Pipeline, for example, and new waves of direct action by Extinction Rebellion and others, and school strikes in response to climate change. Climate change protesters often accuse governments of inaction. Let's look at it from a different angle. Governments are acting, but they are acting in accordance with capital's economic imperatives. They are allowing global average temperature to rise far more than 2 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial level and pushing the resulting suffering onto hundreds of millions of people outside the rich world. They are empowering fossil fuel producers and corporations in fossil-intensive industrial sectors to dabble with dangerous techno-fixes and false, quote, solutions in the name of economic growth. They are protecting their system. The most powerful response to looming climate catastrophe will not come from within the COP26 process, but from outside it, in the actions of grassroots organizers, communities, social and labor movements, and of society as a whole. And here's a piece by Mark Hertzgard, connecting Exxon and COP26. This is published at thenation.com. Fossil fuel companies bear as much responsibility as governments do for humanity's climate predicament and for finding a way out. Our planetary house is on fire, and these companies have literally supplied the fuel. Worse, they lied about it for decades to blunt public awareness and policy reform. There's no better time for ExxonMobil and other petroleum giants to be held accountable than at the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow in November. The Glasgow summit is more than just another international meeting. It is the last chance for world leaders to limit future temperature rise to an amount that civilization can survive. Doing so, scientists say, will require a rapid global decline in oil, gas, and coal burning. Fossil fuel companies have fiercely resisted this imperative for years lobbying governments, often behind the scenes, to maintain the status quo. COP26 is an ideal setting to bring the company's resistance to the world's attention and put it on trial, at least in the court of public opinion. Courts of law around the world are already leading the way. As of year-end 2020, at least 1,550 climate change lawsuits have been filed worldwide, against governments and companies according to data collected by the sabin center for climate change law at columbia university dozens of these lawsuits seek financial compensation from fossil fuel companies for the loss and damage caused by the burning of the company's products some lawsuits for example those brought by new york city and the state of minnesota point out that oil and gas companies have known privately for decades that their products would cause catastrophic temperature rise and extreme weather. Nevertheless, these companies lied about what they knew, telling the outside world that human-made climate change was unproven. An internal Exxon document dated October 16, 1979 and stamped Proprietary Information, stated that increasing fossil fuel combustion will cause a warming of the Earth's surface and a dramatic environmental effects before the year 2050. Royal Dutch Shell even anticipated the current wave of lawsuits. An internal study in 1998 forecast a scenario in which environmental groups would band together to file quote, a class action lawsuit on the grounds of neglecting what scientists, including the industry's own, have been saying for years. Indeed, last May, the Netherlands branch of the advocacy group Friends of the Earth won a landmark case against Shell. A Dutch court ordered Shell to bring its global operations in line with the Paris Agreement goal of limiting temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. This will require Shell to reduce both its own and its customers' emissions by a staggering 45% from 2019 levels by 2030. Shell is appealing the ruling. Such large, rapid emissions reductions happen to be exactly what the latest scientist science says the Glasgow summit must achieve. Only by slashing heat-trapping emissions in half by 2030 can humanity possibly achieve the larger imperative of ending emissions entirely by 2050. Fossil fuel companies cannot be put on trial in Glasgow. The COP26 summit is a diplomatic meeting, not a court of law but wrongdoing can also be alleged and adjudicated in the courts of public opinion. COP26, as a high-profile gathering of thousands of government officials and civil society representatives that will receive extensive media coverage, could have a powerful impact on public narratives throughout the world. The formal COP26 proceedings also offer an opportunity to make fossil fuel companies a constructive part of the solution to the climate emergency. Governments and climate activists in the Global South have long demanded compensation for the loss and damage poor countries suffer from extreme weather events that are worsened by the climate crisis, such as heat, drought, storms, and rising seas. They justify this demand on two grounds. These climate impacts fall disproportionately on poor countries, even though they have emitted exponentially less heat-trapping gases than rich countries have. Rich countries accept this logic, In the Paris Agreement, they pledged to provide $100 billion a year in climate aid to poor countries. They have yet to honor that pledge, however, and experts calculate that poor countries actually need at least twice that much money to adapt to climate impacts while also shifting their economies to clean energy. Whatever the actual amount, taxpayers in rich countries are the ones currently slated to cover the cost of such climate aid. But why shouldn't that burden fall instead on the true authors of the climate emergency? Fossil fuel companies have known for decades that they were driving civilization to ruin. They didn't care. Indeed, they lied to keep the profits rolling in. Isn't it time for them to start paying for the trouble and suffering they've caused? And finally on that topic, here's a piece by Candice Mallett published at TeenVogue.com. Fossil fuel companies should pay reparations for fueling climate change. If you look out at the water off the coast of Southern California long enough, you're likely to spot some dolphins. Another easily spotted local site, though much less scenic, the oil-producing and transporting facilities dotting the shoreline. In late June, near the coast of San Diego, Captain Dominic Biagini, of Gone Whale Watching San Diego filmed a pod of dolphins swimming in oil sheen. The United States Coast Guard tells Teen Vogue that the source of the oil sheen is unclear, but there is an ongoing investigation. When a Mexican state oil operation had a gas leak that caused a blazing eye of fire on the surface of the Gulf of Mexico, I immediately thought of the wildlife whose livelihoods were possibly being destroyed and disrupted. How can we be so deep in the climate crisis and continue to exploit and poison the planet pretending that we'll be able to achieve, quote, net zero carbon emissions by 2050 or that doing so will even be enough? The evidence is out there, but we know the fossil fuel industry's lobbyists and PR teams have for decades minimized the impact of carbon emissions in contributing to the climate crisis. The industries and individuals that have devastated this planet should not be able to continue to profit. What we need now is an end to destructive new fossil fuel projects and climate reparations. Around the world, black and non-black indigenous people have shown that we don't have to wait for intervention by world leaders to take action against the fossil fuel industry. Recently in Memphis, black community members successfully stopped a pipeline from being constructed. Plains All-American and Valero Energy's Bahalia Connection Pipeline would have cut through the city's predominantly black communities. Justin J. Pearson, co-founder of Memphis Community Against the Pipeline, MCAP, an organization that was created to stop the Bahalia Pipeline, tells Teen Vogue that the project was definitely an example of environmental racism. Quote, it was called the pathway to least resistance, Pearson says, paraphrasing a comment made by a pipeline representative. A spokesperson for the project later clarified the statement to ABC, stating, What should have been said is that we looked for the path with the fewest collective impacts. Pearson points out that the environmental racism isn't just one project, but, quote, The consistent siting and zoning of pollution factories and facilities and refineries and pipelines in lower-wealth, black, indigenous communities of color. The fight against the Bahalia Pipeline made Pearson more aware of how environmental racism has impacted his own family. He recently lost a family member to cancer and says multiple members of his family have asthma. The more I learned about environmental racism, he says, the more the statistics became personalized. Shelby County, one of the only majority black counties in Tennessee, has an F-grade for ozone pollution from the American Lung Association. Area pollution comes from the local oil refinery, steel factory, cargo airport, and the residual effects of a U.S. government-owned coal refinery in the county that closed in 2018. Pearson says he believes that his community and family deserve reparations from the U.S. government and companies that contribute to the poor air quality though he adds that he doesn't often use the term reparations to describe the work that needs to be done. He mentions ensuring health care for those impacted and closure of the facilities that have been polluting the community. There's going to have to be a rethinking of the value of people's lives in those communities, he says, and an intentional investment in the millions if not billions of dollars to remediate a lot of the harm that has been done. Another pipeline resistance effort has recently coalesced in northern Minnesota. Stop Line 3 is an indigenous-led effort to stop the construction of Enbridge Energy Line 3, which has been taking cues from the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock and other protests against the encroachment of fossil fuel companies on ancestral tribal lands. The project would replace the current damaged Line 3 by building a bigger pipeline on a different route. Indigenous communities and environmental advocates fear that the Line 3 could endanger the water supply and local wildlife. Teisha Martineau, a Fond du Lac water protector and co-founder of Camp McGeezy, one of the resistance camps established to stop the pipeline, thinks oil companies should address the harm they've caused to Indigenous people and all communities that have been harmed. For Martineau, reparations aren't necessarily financial. We don't want monetary gains from these pipelines, she tells Teen Vogue. Instead, reparations and justice from these corporations would look like decommissioning the old lines and helping the habitats that they have previously gone through to restabilize. Martin Martineau says efforts to frame a particular energy source or project as a more environmentally friendly alternative are instances of greenwashing of extractive practices. She mentions mentions lithium mines being built in Nevada's Thacker Pass, which is on sacred land for the northern Paiute and western Shoshone, as an example. Lithium batteries may help the U.S. transition from fossil fuels to electric energy, but mining this mineral is also extractive and harming indigenous habitats. Beyond environmental concerns, energy and fossil fuel projects like pipeline construction can create a host of other problems, as Martineau explains. When pipelines come through Indigenous territories, it increases both drug and sex trafficking. In March, Truthout reported that Enbridge is reimbursing at least one nonprofit shelter to cover housing costs for people who were allegedly assaulted by workers on the Line 3 pipeline. In a statement sent to Teen Vogue, Enbridge states that it has a zero-tolerance policy for illegal and exploitive behavior, and that all workers must participate in mandatory human trafficking awareness training. We join with our contractors and unions to denounce the illegal and exploitive actions of those who participate in sex trafficking, the statement reads. These projects also exacerbate tensions between local law enforcement and those who oppose pipeline construction. Hundreds of Line 3 protesters have been arrested since the protests escalated this summer. Quote, The corporation is incentivizing law enforcement, Martineau says, so it's mostly if it wasn't for law enforcement, they wouldn't even be able to build Line 3 because the people's power behind the movement outweighs those who are supporting it. But it is law enforcement that is currently enforcing the eminent domain of this corporation, allowing this project to be built. The Intercept reported that the county sheriff sent other local officials photos of both Martineau and their partner, before the Line 3 encampment was even established, singling them out. The Aitken County Sheriff's Department declined Teen Vogue's request for additional comment and pointed to Facebook posts by a collection of law enforcement agencies in the region known as the North Lights Task Force, which spoke to arrests of protesters. Repression by law enforcement is not an uncommon response. Familiar tactics were used against Standing Rock protesters, In recent years, quote, critical infrastructure laws have been passed that work to criminalize pipeline protesters. Last year, Mississippi, Kentucky, South Dakota, and West Virginia passed laws meant to dissuade protesters, and in the past few months, lawmakers in Montana, Kansas, and Arkansas have passed similar legislation. The penalties range from fines to felony charges. Montana's bill is especially severe. $150,000 in fines and up to 30 years imprisonment if found guilty of vandalizing infrastructure at oil and gas facilities and causing $1,500 or more in damage. Organizations can be found as co-conspirators and hit with a fine of up to $1.5 million. And in June, the House passed legislation that could make it easier for more states to police protests at energy infrastructure sites. The Enhancing State Energy Security Planning and Emergency Preparedness Act of 2021 would grant the Department of Defense ability to authorize funds to states to secure energy infrastructures against physical and cybersecurity threats and other, quote, vulnerabilities. Along with criminalizing and penalizing pipeline resistance, there is also a push to make it more difficult to hold fossil fuel companies accountable. Capital and Maine reported that an oil and gas lobby group is attempting to remove environmental protections from water wells in Kern County, California, which have been designated as agriculture water wells. If successful, that could make it harder for those impacted by a tainted water supply to sue the companies responsible. In April... New York City lost a suit that sought to make ExxonMobil, British Petroleum, and other energy companies reimburse taxpayers for their contributions to the climate crisis. When thinking of the scope of harm that fossil fuel industry has caused, it is hard to imagine financial compensation that could ever be substantial enough. What cost can be put on the mass extinction of wildlife, the illness and deaths of human beings? and the destruction of the Earth's land and waters. The companies and individuals that have benefited from so much destruction must be held responsible, and we must stop them from creating more violence. We must look at the world we live in and how colonialism, anti-blackness, and capitalism have allowed industries to be so negligent for so long. It's not just one pipeline that needs to be stopped. It's a complete value system That needs to be eradicated. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral. And you can look for all those back episodes and uh, links to make a donation or send me a message at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. You can also listen to back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral and all my other podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com and now a moment of zen thanks for listening the early indian societies
1: of north america uh no really if you uh that were remarkably they didn't have much to share but what they had they shared and uh you read the reports of, of the, the Jesuit missionaries who came here and studied the, the way the uh, indigenous people here lived and, uh, and then wrote these reports, they, 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 there's an amazing amount of documentation of, of m- much more closely examined than even modern anthropologists have done with, with societies and Uh, There's a man named William Brandon who who went through the archives in in France to see what the Jesuits wrote back about. And you might think, well, he's romanticizing, and it's possible to romanticize ancient civilizations, and some of them were warlike and and violent and so on. But also there were societies in those times, there were Indian societies in those times, uh, with a remarkable sharing of all the goods and with a remarkable equality between men and women. In fact, a matriarchal society in many of these instances, but a society in which the relations between men and women were better than the relations between men and women in modern times. I'm not pointing to these as things we, to which we must return, uh, or, uh, or saying things were ideal then. And I don't even think it's necessary to find, as some people think, you, mu- you must find somewhere a place where the really good society existed otherwise we won't believe one is possible and and I don't think it's necessary to do that because I think that, I think the human uh, I think human beings are capable of creating things that were never created before and I, I refuse to believe that 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 only the things that have happened in the human past exhaust the possibilities for the human race I don't think that's that's the case yes